Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 164, and we're going to have a little bit of a rant about this growing trend to be utterly negative about van life. Why I quit van life? Why van life sucks? Yeah, not. We're also going to talk about the impact of wind on awnings and how you can tell if you should bring your awning in, a product review of solar-powered string lights, and a tale from the road that, well, requires a content warning, and we will get to that. Hey, before we get started, I got called out on a couple of things last week, and, uh, well, I like that. I like that people tell me, hey, you're wrong, and that's fine. So one of the things was the whole idea of dripping your gray water out of your vehicle while you're driving a little bit, and, well, someone pointed out that people on motorcycles really might not appreciate that. So, like I said, I'm not sure it's a good idea, but if you do try it, try to just have a tiniest little drip and be considerate of those who might be following you. You don't want a stream of liquid coming out of your vehicle that's going to get on motorcyclists or splash in people's windshields. The other thing was about my tale from the road where I accidentally stepped on the gas pedal and the brake at the same time, and I suggested that you put the vehicle in neutral. Well, that's something you do not want to do If your brakes are failing, and I appreciate this being pointed out to me. Now, if you're in a situation where your brakes are failing, it's going to feel a lot different than stepping on the brakes and the vehicle accelerating. You'll probably have an engine light on, you know, your brake light will come on. It'll probably be obvious. So yeah, there's something else you have to worry about. You have to be able to tell the difference between sudden acceleration and brake failure. But if you are in a situation where it's brake failure, yeah, do not put your vehicle in neutral. If possible, downshift because you want that engine power to help slow down your vehicle. Both very good points, and thank you guys for letting me know. And now we can start. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Apologies in advance. I have another cold. I cannot get healthy, period. Um, and it, it, it's affecting my voice, so I just thought I'd let you know that if I'm sounding a little weird, it's just because I have, like, my ninth cold in a row. Yes, I'm sick of it. But having a little bit of a cold has put me in a mood to do a little bit of a rant. And, uh, yeah, we're going to have a rant today because even though I already talked about the same thing several months ago... It's still going on, and that is this phenomenon that the only time people talk about van life now on YouTube is to dump on it. I Go ahead and do this experiment. Go ahead, go into YouTube, and in the search box, type in van life, one word, and then look at what you see. Why is everyone quitting van life? The real reason everyone is quitting van life. My home is rattling apart. Five lies of van life that nobody talks about. Those ones that say nobody talks about them, if you actually watch them, it's stuff everybody's always talking about. (laughs) This is why I quit van life. Our scariest day of van life. The end of van life. Someone broke into our home on wheels. Van life is dying. And so on and so It's all negative. It's all negative. I mean, it's not all negative. There are, of course, people who have been doing van life forever who keep posting things, you know, that are normal van life stuff. Like, you know, hey, I got a new stove and it works great. Or I found a wonderful place to camp. I, I don't really understand the phenomenon here where all this negative stuff is becoming the norm for van life content. Now, it is true that van life was something that was hyped over the last five, ten years. 
van life was like this thing that was presented as this magical lifestyle that you could do for free and hardly spend any money and wake up somewhere beautiful every day. And of course, everybody should have known that was never the whole story. But that doesn't mean we just have to give up on it now. We don't have to throw away van life. So, you know, I am still very, very much interested in van life. I am still doing the podcast. I'm still working on my van. And I still have plans to head out on the road if I can get my freaking health under control. And my van. Although, hey, my van is doing great. After throwing $6,000 into it or whatever, now the thing is running like a top. So it's ready to go. I just have to get my body ready to go. But look. What is van life about? Why are you doing van life? That's the most important question to answer before you start doing it. And for me, I'll give you the bottom line up front. The answer is freedom. Freedom, being able to live life on your own terms. If you have a vehicle that you can travel in and cook in and sleep in and do everything you need to do in, you can be anywhere at any time doing anything you want within, you know, physical reason. You do not need a camper van to travel. I mean, I traveled all over the country. I saw all 50 states without owning a van. I mean, that's kind of technically not true. But when I finished my 50 states by age 50 trip, which I did a couple thousand miles, I did that in a smart car. Now, I know people have turned smart cars into campers. They're on YouTube. You can type in smart car camper and you will see that people have done this. But at six feet tall, I am physically longer than the entire inside of a smart car. <laughs> this was not an option for me. And I hadn't even considered it. So what I did was, what a lot of people do, I stayed in hotels. I could have stayed in campgrounds, I could have put a tent in the back, I mean, that was an option too, but I stayed in hotels and yes, it worked. I was able to go to all these places, spend the night in hotels and hit the road in the morning. It was fine, but it also kind of sucked. I didn't have the freedom I wanted. And by that I mean, I don't want to have to be somewhere at a certain time. That is a constraint that I find very onerous when I'm really just trying to explore. I mean, if it's four o'clock in the afternoon and I run into this place I really wanna see, but I have to drive two hours to get to my hotel, that's a problem. Also, there are times when I'm done for the day at like one. I've done a lot of stuff in the morning, or maybe I got up early and drove a lot, and at one o'clock, I'm ready to go just chill out and crash and watch a movie or something. You can't do that with a hotel. In fact, between the hours of basically noon and three, you can't be in a hotel unless you've made special arrangements or you're there for more than one night. So I would find myself just like wandering around waiting for my hotel to let me in, or forcing myself to drive when I didn't feel like it just to get to a hotel reservation that I'd made. And then of course, every time you're in a hotel, it's a whole totally different situation. Every hotel is different. Yes, you can use the same chain if you want, but I was going to these little tiny places like Lemon, South Dakota, where you're not gonna find the big chains. I mean, if I had been loyal to Hampton Inns or something like that, I would have had a more similar experience. But a lot of times I was staying in these mom and pop places and some of them were really weird. I stayed at this one place in Fort Lauderdale, Florida that used to be a hospital and you basically got a hospital room and it looked like a hospital room. It, you know, now I drive an ambulance, so I'm used to this, right? But it was like staying in a hospital room as a hotel. And the really weird part is that it was owned by this Christian sect. 
So everything was weirdly like Jesus-y all over the... It, it was one of the strangest places I've ever stayed. Uh, and it was fine. I slept the night and I left and got my money's worth and everything was okay there. But it was really weird. And sometimes that's a good thing, right? You want those experiences. But other times you want to have more control. And that's what a camper van gives you. If your camper van's good to go, you can go anywhere. And you don't have to worry about sleeping or meals or where your clothes are or where your tools are or where your computer is. You have all that stuff under control and that gives you the chance to focus on what you really want to do. And that to me is the point of van life. Now that's to me, for me. There are people who do van life because they find it to be a lifestyle that they want. It's the minimalist lifestyle they're looking for. That's great. Or they're trying to save money. That's fine. You absolutely can save money by living in a van if you're very careful because van life does not mean cheap life necessarily. And there's a whole lot of folks who are living in a vehicle because they can't live anywhere else. They count themselves fortunate to have a vehicle because otherwise they'd be in a cardboard box. And for the folks who are living in vehicles not by choice, well, we don't need to add to their stigma by constantly putting on social media now that van life sucks, blah, 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 blah. So folks, as with all these things, whether this is a hobby or a lifestyle or just something you're interested in, Take everything you see with a grain of salt and figure out how it applies to your life. Don't live your life on someone else's terms. Don't do this because you're trying to live up to some ideal that somebody else has created for you. Do this because there's something you want to do and this lets you do it. That's the only reason to do van life. And when I say do van life, I mean to either build or acquire a camper van and head out on the road and sleep in it and cook in it and all that kind of stuff. Are there aspects of van life that suck? Of course, there's aspects of living in a brick and mortar that suck too. I mean, I have a condo in an old warehouse and sometimes it rains sand. <laughs> it's because of the way the building's constructed. We have exposed brick walls and the mortar is well over 100 years old. And sometimes, well, it'll just rain sand. That's no fun, but it's okay because we enjoy living in the historic building enough that we don't mind that and we put it aside. And it's the same way with van life. So don't get disheartened by any of this negative stuff. Watch the stuff, listen to what they say. And a lot of these videos are just people who simply weren't ready for van life or they're just ready to be done with it because they've done it for a couple of years and they're ready to move on with their life. And that's fine. I've said this before. I will keep saying it. If you try van life for a while and then you stop, that is not a failure. There's no failure there. You did a thing. You have an accomplishment. You have something to put on your resume if you want. That's all a success. It's only a failure if you think it is. So it's up to you to define success for van life. And for me, the success is giving it a try. And I'll tell you what, van life has always existed and it always will in one form or another. The trend, the the pretty pictures and the fashion associated with van life, all that stuff is transient. It comes and goes. Vans were huge in the 70s. They were all shag carpet with fancy windows and stuff in them. And then in the 80s, that was seen as passe. And then came conversion vans, which were a little bit different. And then by the late 90s, that was passe. And then in the 2000s came the van life. That's all transient. But what isn't transient is people finding the freedom that a vehicle you can sleep in and cook in gives you. That isn't transient. It's always been a thing ever since there were vehicles. So 
do what you want to do don't listen to the noise take from social media everything that's useful everything that serves you and just let the rest of it hit the floor tech talk a lot of us have awnings I actually don't have an awning on my van, but I would like to. I do have an awning on the Winnebago, and I just put up a standalone kind of gazebo canopy thing. And with all of these situations, I've had issues with the wind. Uh, all right, the, the van without the awning, less so. But question is, if you have an awning on your van, can you leave it up or is the wind going to destroy it? Now, if you're a super fancy person and you have one of those fancy electric awnings that doesn't even have arms, they often have wind detectors on them. And if a big gust of wind comes and it hits the awning, it will retract itself. And that's wonderful and great for all of you fancy folks. But for the rest of us who just have standard Zipti awnings or Dometic awnings or any other kind of awning, it's up to us to decide when to bring the awning in. Now, as a general rule, I bring in the awning on the Winnebago at night and whenever I leave the campsite. That's my general rule. There are times when I fudge that a little bit. So I've come up with a way that I can be reasonably sure that it's safe to leave it. And that is I use weather apps. So there's an app called Windy, Apple Weather, the weather app that comes with iPhones, for example, will give you predicted wind speeds. And the limit, the number you're looking for, is 25. But there's a trick. You're not looking for the average wind speed, you're looking for the maximum wind speed, and often that is recorded separately as gusts. So if you see a prediction of a gust over 25 miles an hour for the time that you're not going to be readily available to take down your awning, yeah, take down your awning. Because above 25 miles per hour, that's when real damage can happen. And the damage can be really bad. Not only can it just rip the awning right off your vehicle, it can rip the side of your vehicle off too. You do not want wind to get at your awning. It's a very bad thing. Now, my Winnebago, the awning is probably... 15 feet long so it's a pretty big one and we had a gust of wind last week come and it actually bent one of the arms and this is heavy duty stuff here i was kind of impressed and a little bit annoyed <laughs> that this happened now for standalone canopies you may even want to lower that a bit i just put up a canopy and then it wasn't even four hours later a gust of wind which i was able to look up and it was a 43 mile an hour gust of wind picked the thing up and threw it across the campsite. And when I got there to look at it and see what failed, it was actually the guy lines. I had put in heavy duty stakes and I had roped the thing down, but the ropes, the ones that came with this thing, actually snapped. So the bottom line is, wind will destroy your stuff. You have to set a limit, and that limit is 25 miles an hour for attached awnings, and I would say 20 miles an hour for any kind of canopy product review so you have power in your van you've got a battery in there and so you know why not just use that battery to power any lights you have and i'm speaking mostly about exterior lights here but this could be for interior lights too and um there is a reason and that is complexity i have a bunch of lights in my van they're all controlled by the leisure battery and that's fine these are my everyday use lights my cooking lights my quote-unquote ugly lights my nighttime lights all that stuff is controlled by the leisure battery in the back of the van and it all works fine i'm not worried about it 
But what about lights on the outside? For example, let's say I had an awning or a canopy set up and I wanted to run lights around that. Well, I could just run them into the cigarette lighter or some other outlet in the van. But then I've got this wire that I've got to kind of run through the door or something. Or want to get really fancy, I suppose I could put a port on the outside. But truth is, it isn't worth it. Because solar-powered string lights are great. These things are wonderful. And this is what I recommend for all of your exterior lighting that isn't like, you know really really bright just kind of your mood lighting i have a whole bunch of these string lights and they've lasted for years and i leave them outside all the time they come with these little solar panels that you aim at the sun which is typically south and then at night they come on and then they either the battery dies during the night or they shut off by themselves in the morning and literally they've lasted for years and they always have modes like you can make them blink or you can make them slowly glow or you can change colors or whatever. There's, there's hundreds and hundreds of options. But the point of this product review is to tell you that yes, they work. Yes, they're worth it, but also to point out that they're super convenient because they can move. You can change these lights for whatever situation you're in. You don't have to hook them up, or you can, or you can bring them with you when you're going somewhere else, or you can wrap them around a table, or you can make a fake campfire with them. There's so many things you can do, and you don't have to have them attached to anything, and I think they're wonderful. So I'm not going to have a link in the show notes because there are just so many of these things, but if you just Google solar-powered lights, solar-powered fairy lights, solar-powered string lights, solar-powered tiki lights, we even have some that look like flamingos for our scamp. They're out there, and boy, they're a bargain, and they work, and I highly recommend you get some. A place to visit. So I'm changing the order of things here a little bit because my tale from the road as a content warning, and then I want people to be able to end the podcast there. So tale from the road's coming next. But anyway, we're going to talk about this place to visit, which is really cool. I've been here a few times. Now, this is in Lee County, Florida, and it's in Estero. And uh, this is probably not the best time of year to go down there. It's getting a little bit hot, and they're still suffering from the, the hurricane impact from last year. But at some point, if you are, find yourself in Lee County, and you know maybe you've gone to Sanibel or something like that, check this place out. It is called Koreshin State Park. Now, you may have heard the word Koreshin before, or Koresh, as in David Koresh, Waco, Texas. Yeah, this has the same origin, but it isn't the same group. However, it is a site that was founded by a religious group who had an unusual belief. Well, they had many unusual beliefs, but their most unusual belief was that the earth was hollow and that way we were living on the inside of it. That's right. We were basically in a Dyson sphere where we were living in the inside of the earth and the sun and the moon were also in there with us. Very strange stuff. But they were dedicated to proving this was true. And they still have all the models and equipment that they used at the state park that you can look at. And one way they tried to prove this was with a thing called a rectolineator, which is this device that would measure curvature of the Earth. And they predicted that if they were, in fact, living inside a sphere, if you placed two of these rectolineators a given distance apart, they would show that the world was curved, well, basically upwards. And they did the tests, and sure enough, 
the tests prove that we do live in a sphere. Now, you might wonder how that's possible, and uh, I'm going to suggest that maybe there's a little bit of confirmation bias there in their testing. But this wasn't just a group of, you know, sorry to use the term, but quote-unquote crazy people. These were very industrious people who did a lot, and they built this compound that ended up being like the bedrock of the community there. In fact, they installed the first power plant that ran on crude oil, if you can believe that. they ha Actually, it's still there, and it still works. They have an electrical power plant that runs on crude oil. That's how old this is. And that provided electricity for, for everybody around them. And they had a big bakery and a laundry, and they were basically providing necessities for the entire community. But they had two beliefs that basically spelled their doom. The first was that they believed in immortality, like not afterlife immortality, but like life immortality. And when their leader died, well, they put him in the bathtub because he was kind of leaking a little bit and uh, uh, he didn't get up. <laughs> so they decided to put him in a box in the ground and, you know, just for when he wakes up later. It, well, yeah, and you, you get it. He never woke up. The other belief was that uh, sex was not a thing. You, you didn't have sex. There was no sex. And therefore, there were no new members being created among the people who lived in the community. And they weren't exactly evangelical, so they weren't bringing in a lot of new people. And I think the last living Koreshian died, was it the 80s? Like 1981, something like that. But you can find the answer if you go visit this place. It's Koreshian State Park in Estero, Florida. It's five bucks to go in there. It is beautiful. There's all these old buildings that you can explore, and then there are these gardens, and there's a river, and it's just a really nice place to go, and I don't think enough people know about it. I'll have a link in the show notes to it, but you can just Google Koreshian State Park in Estero, Florida. Tales from the road. Okay, folks, this is a very rare content warning for me. We're about to talk about suicide, and that is a very serious issue. I just had a colleague who passed this way recently, which kind of made me think about this, and I do not want to be triggering for anybody here. So if this is a topic you don't want to hear about, go ahead and skip ahead, and uh, that's fine, or just end the episode here. So I used to work for a suicide hotline. It was a volunteer position, but it, it was a little bit like work. It was interesting because you had to pay for the training. Even though it was a volunteer position, they made you pay for the training, which was extensive. And I think that was a good idea because it, it weeded out a lot of people. Only dedicated people were going to do this job. And now that I've done it, I, I can see why. Because it's grueling. The way it worked is you were in a little office and there were two people, always two people. Sometimes it could have been more, but there were at least two people there. And you'd be set up by a computer and then phone calls would come in. And the phone calls could be about anything. Even though the number of people were dialing was 1-800-SUICIDE, pretty easy to remember, they didn't always call because they were that desperate. We had a lot of people who called every day, in fact, just because they needed somebody to talk to, and that was fine. It was kind of a complicated situation because we had to have the same call every day with the same people. And while it was annoying and it didn't seem like we were making any progress, what we were actually doing was giving their caregivers time to not have to take care of these folks. So if we could spend an hour with them on the phone every day, that was an hour a caregiver had. So it was a very valuable service. And this was all part of the training that you learned that all calls were valid in some way or another. Out of this were a lot of stories. And I 
can't tell a lot of them, not only because of confidentiality, which was a really big deal, but also because they're really horrific. And I don't mean in the sense that we had people calling with a gun pointing to their head. I mean in the sense that people abused this hotline terribly. Because back in the early 2000s, a free phone number that you could call was a plaything for some really twisted people. And uh, I'll leave it at that. You can use your imagination. And what actually happened was probably worse. But the story I wanted to tell just to give you an idea of what folks who do suicide hotlines go through, is I was on a call one night. It was kind of late, actually. I think it was 11 o'clock at night, and the call came in, and I answered the phone. Hello, Hopeline, how can I help you? I think is how we used to say it. And I heard a voice. It was something like this. Like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling very good. I might need some help. And okay, we're into action. Now, we have a computer that helps us walk through things. It, it isn't like a wizard or anything, but it gives us some suggestions and also helps us record things. And so I'm, you know, typing in the notes. We don't know who you are when you call. We don't have your phone number. We don't have your name or anything. There's nothing recorded that this phone number called at this time and talked about this. You know, there's nothing anyone could subpoena or anything like that. So it's completely confidential. But I was talking to this person and we were trained in Rogerian techniques, which was a lot of reflecting. So I said something like, oh, I, I understand you're not feeling very well and that you might need some help. And, you know, so what can we do for you? And we were trained not to ask questions so much as just reflect back to people what they were saying. And, and this is this is a common technique in talk therapy and stuff. Anyway, it became very clear after like 30 seconds that we weren't really communicating because he was so far out of it on whatever drugs or alcohol or whatever he had ingested that he basically either couldn't understand what we were saying or literally even couldn't hear us. We couldn't tell. And when I say we, that's because at some point this, this became a serious call like, hmm, there's something going on here. And I called my partner over who turned off their cue and listened in on my call because we didn't know what was going to happen here. Well, what actually happened was he got slower and slower and responded less and less. And so we're on the call desperately trying to get his attention. Hey, can you hold the phone up higher? Or so, you know, that kind of thing. You know, we started asking questions because we were trying to get some response and there was literally nothing to reflect back at this point. And then the phone kind of went silent. I mean, we could hear he was still there. We could hear breathing. And it was very erratic. And I don't know, shallow is the right word, but it didn't sound normal. And then the breathing sounds kind of trailed off. And then we heard beeping. Beep. Beep. Now, this was back in the early 2000s where everyone still had landlines, but we were fancy with our landlines. We had cordless phones and that beep we were listening to was the sound of his phone dying. The battery in his cordless phone was running out. So we are desperately trying to get a touch with this guy, get him to respond or something. But all we could end up doing was listening to the beeps until they stopped. And then the call was terminated. Do we know what happened? No, we have no clue. Did he wake up in the morning with a hangover? I hope so. That's what I'd like to think happened. Did someone find his body the next day? It's possible. So I tell this story just so you folks are aware. There's a large group of dedicated people out there working tirelessly for no money at all 
trying to help people and that knowing the phone number 1-800-SUICIDE is a really good thing. And again, it's not just for suicide. If you're having any kind of personal crisis and you just need to talk to somebody anonymously, 1-800-SUICIDE will get you to a non-judgmental listening person who actually does care. Because if they didn't, why the heck would they go through this? Well, folks, thank you for listening to episode 164. I absolutely appreciate it. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. If for any reason you need to get a hold of me, I am Jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. And until next time, remember the words of H. Jackson Brown. Opportunity dances with those who are already on the dance floor. <laughs>